Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is Leah Kaufman. And I'm John Murphy. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests so that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear. We hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All the survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute Felice Vest. And now, on to today's podcast. We'll hear from two researchers working on new ways to grow bone. Garden variety bone breaks usually heal just fine with the help of a cast, but large breaks and defects can't be spanned by the blood vessels that regrowing bone tissue needs for nourishment. Dr. Jans Hilborn from Sweden's Uppsala University is developing a new kind of scaffold inspired by the extracellular matrix in which our own cells live, what he calls the ultimate biomaterial. Dr. Hilborn and his team produce extracellular matrices enriched with the proteins that encourage new bone to grow. Once perfected, Dr. Hilborn hopes this new method will offer hope to people who have skull and dental defects as a result of developmental problems, trauma, or disease. We'll also hear from Dr. Ivan Martin from Switzerland's University Hospital at Basen. His team is using bioreactors to jumpstart the growth of a patient's own bone progenitor cells on ceramic granules. Dr. Martin is developing this mixture to replace damaged discs in the spine and hopes to develop it into a treatment for bone breaks too large to heal by themselves. We met both researchers at the 2006 Regenerate World Congress in April. Let's start by hearing Leah's interview with Dr. Hilborn. It's uh, Jans Hilborn. I'm from uh, Sweden, Uppsala University. And what kind of work do you do there? I'm a chemist, uh, but we prepare scaffold materials, and we also engineer cells to produce extracellular matrix as scaffold materials. So we do both uh, chemistry and biology and a little bit material science and uh, cell culture. It sounds like you probably have people from many disciplines then in your laboratory. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We uh, have mechanical engineers, we have uh, MDs, chemists, biologists, so we have a mix. I'm hearing more and more that this is the new model for how to, at least in this field, for how to solve a problem, that you have to bring all these disciplines to bear. And when you trained, were you sort of only with other chemists or whatever? You're, yes, you're I, I was trained I was trained as a chemist, only with chemists, and I spent many years only doing chemistry. And then I found out, hey, I got to do something else. I get a mixing in other sciences, and I found biology is fascinating. So now I mix the things, and I'm, it's so fun. Yeah. I, I really like it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, do you find that sometimes you uh, have trouble translating with all of these other disciplines, with these people that you work with? Yes, I do. Sometimes you realize you don't have the skills to do really good biology when you're a chemist. And, but you have to collaborate and submit the papers anyway and get you know, the feedback and, uh, but it's awarding. It is, yeah. you know, people do appreciate the work that we do and uh, get things uh, really cited, well cited, so it's good. Do you ever find yourself uh, saying, you know, we don't have anybody who can do skill X. Let's go hire one. <laughs> and you find, you know, three months later that you've, you've got that one person with that skill and you're off in a different direction? Yes. That happens, yeah. definitely. I think that's more possible now than yeah, it used it is. to be. And I think that I encourage that kind of work. 
And I encourage students to talk to others or the researchers to talk to others and come up with new ideas. We said, we point out the direction. Let's say we, we want target for this. Go around the corner and we find something else. Mm -hmm. And we are observer. We look at what do we, what do we find? And then we find that this is actually better than what we targeted for. And then we go off in this direction. So it's curiosity-driven research. And this comes about because I don't understand decide everything in the lab. Mm -hmm. Instead, I listen to people, I try to listen at least. <laughs> and if they come up with good ideas that are better than I thought of, why not? Sure. And this, uh, the multidisciplinarity allows this, I think, and I enjoy it. Are, is your lab at, in your institution, are you as driven to publish, publish or perish as we are here in the States? Yes. Okay. So it's actually a thin line that you walk when you're deciding to go off in a previously un unexplored direction because you don't know if it'll bear fruit, do you? No, I don't. Okay, and so you take a risk. I take a risk, yeah. yeah. But they give me some resources, so I'm allowed to take this risk now. Okay. And I worked a long time in Switzerland without the resources and without the possibility of taking a risk, so I you know, kept to my own area, but now I was given opportunity and I take the risk. Good. And it works. Yeah. Are there any particular um, discoveries or products or that, that have come from a direction that you didn't know you were going to take that ended up being very fruitful like that? Yeah. The thing with programming cells to produce extracellular matrix and use this as a biomaterial, this is a new line that uh, was invented by one of my students, in fact. He said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's have cells to produce materials. Now we... Uh, genetically modify the cells to overexpress certain growth factors into the materials. So we have really scaffolds that are ECM materials and uh, safe, no viral contamination, not human-derived, no animal-derived materials, but still extracellular matrix. That's interesting. So you're somehow inserting a gene that produces a certain protein together with the extracellular matrix. Okay. And this protein growth factor is tremendously potentiated by the extracellular matrix. Purified, it's nothing, but together with ESM, it's really powerful. T tell us a little bit about ex extracellular matrix. I think of it as the stuff between the cells. You're but right. what's in it? <laughs> You're right. That's the stuff between the cells. And uh, before it was thought of as just a filler between the cells and this is what holds this tissue together. If you pull on the skin, for instance, this gives the skin the strength. For instance, collagen is a component that gives it strength, but there are myriads of components in there and they're precisely organized in detail how they're, they're like brushes and gels and everything. Every molecule has a purpose, mm -hmm. and it's degraded, it has a turnover, they're renewed, and it holds a lot of proteins in position and delivers the protein when the cells want it. And in fact, when cells grow in the extracellular matrix, the cells degrade the matrix, releases these building proteins, growth factors, for instance, which um, tells the cells how to grow and what to form. Okay. So the extracellular matrix is, is an extremely important material. And this is actually the what I see as the ultimate biomaterial. Sure. There, I can see now that there's a lot of crosstalk between cells and their matrix. And yeah. you can't have one without the other. And, no. and in fact, I imagine if you took a single cell and began to culture it, it would produce its own extracellular oh, matrix. Yes. yes. M most cells does, yeah. Okay. But I'm, I'm a material scientist. I'm a chemist. So I thought of, okay, let's make materials that are good for cells. And I found that extracellular matrix 
as the cells are in the extracellular matrix in the body, so why don't we make an extracellular matrix as the material instead? Mm -hmm. And we make this by engineering methods in the lab. Tell me some applications for one of your extracellular matrices. Uh, for instance, the ones we're pursuing right now is an extracellular matrix that is enriched in bone morphogenetic protein 2. It's a pro uh, protein, very potent protein that recruits stem cells or triggers progenitor cells that are just lying in the, in the tissue waiting to become something and they produce bone and we can produce bone with BMP2 and together with this matrix we hope that we have a much more powerful method of delivering BMP2 than what people has used before. This is one application and uh, larger bone defects for instance the way we have done this so far in fact also in patients together with collaborations at Karolinska we wrap a material containing BMP2 around a muscle in the patient and in the shape of the bone that is supposed to be formed then this wrapping delivers BMP2 to the muscle recruits stem cells to produce bone, and this bone is now vascularized, so you can cut off the blood vessels, and by microsurgery now you can take the bone piece and move it to the site where the bone is missing. So you have vascularized bone produced in the patient. Wow. That is one application, for instance. Uh, did you say this has been used clinically? This has not been used with the extracellular matrix material that we've been using because it's not FDA approved, but we have used this with purified BMP2 that we have recombined with extracellular matrix components to make a paste sort of that has been, that is approved. And this has been done, yes. Wow. I know that with a large bone, a missing section of bone, that the options are standard treatment options are pretty grim. Uh, lengthening a bone involves all this external fixation and turning screws and months and months, and or you have a short, permanently shortened limb. So you're talking about a solution to a... Uh, and I imagine, and also to point out to listeners, that this is a common result of traumas from car accidents and things like that. Yes, so. and we've been mainly focusing on skull defects. Mm -hmm. And the problem with bone, large pieces of bone, is that uh, you need the blood vessels. Bone need blood, otherwise it won't grow. So if you're trying to repair bone without blood vessels, that's if you inject cells, for instance, just uh, they will die. So, so a, so a big, need... a big chunk of missing bone. There's no way for the growing bone to span that big. No. That big. No, you, know, you need space. blood vessels. It has to come with the blood vessels. Yeah. And today. I think the limit of blood vessel growth together with bone is about three centimeters. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about defects of 10 centimeters mm -hmm. that we've been uh, approaching now. So it's a way of combining blood vessels with bone growth. So that's methods. an important problem to solve. But our delivery vehicle so far for BMP2 has not been good enough, and that's why we're delivering uh, or trying to make a better delivery vehicle for BMP2 okay. than natural. Right. Well, it sounds like a, it would be a great solution um, to a pretty pressing problem. And I'm thinking also of soldiers who, you know, come back with lots of orthopedic defects um, from the Gulf and other places. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about oral defects when you lose your teeth and you get no bone to put in the screws. Yeah. We're talking about many patients worldwide that uh, need bone.
So do you focus mostly on bone, or do you do? No, no, we do? focus on biomaterials that could deliver a certain factors or having compliance mechanical properties, and we've, we spend a lot of time also looking into uh, the compliance match or the what do you say uh, softness matching how hard the material is compared to the body and what is happening at the interface if it's not matched. So do you mean a synthetic material as it meets a natural material, say a hip, yes. hip implant or an artificial knee yes. joint or something yes. like that? Okay. And uh, what we found is what people call the fibro or the foreign body response by compatibility of a material is this is a key factor in tissue engineering. Once you place in a scaffold, you see that you get some of the tissue that you want, and you get fibrotic tissue. Which is bad. Which is bad, yes. Uh, sometimes you can use actually only fibrotic tissue, and in most applications today in tissue engineering, you do get fibrotic tissue, and we live with it. But you don't want it in heart. It doesn't work. In the brain, you get fibrosis instead of brain. I mean, this doesn't work. So what, what is the reason of fibrosis? And we have proposed and we have actually been able to show that it's, it's mainly due to mechanics in soft tissue. How so? Uh, it's like having shoes that are too tight. You have to crank in the shoes and you get sore feet. Uh -huh. You put in a stiff biomaterial in the soft body and the body moves. You get friction at the interface. I see. And also, um, if you cut out a piece of, of tissue and you load the tissue where something is missing, of course there is going to be mechanical stress uh, where the tissue is missing and you place some, something else. And the body response to this is build a collagen capsule to hold the mechanics. So it's, it's quite simple and evident, uh, but it's not recognized to be the mechanism. So if you match the synthetic material and texture and softness, as you said, with the natural material, then you, you don't get that callus, well, which well, is sort you, of what you minimize, uh, well, you limit the fibrotic capsule formation. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, in order to have a perfect match, you have to adhere the implant to the tissue so it can carry mechanical load over the interface from the tissue to the implant. If you can do that and match the compliance or the modulus, then you probably will not have a fibrotic capsule. Uh, and I think the analogy there is actually a proper fitting shoe because yes, it is. your foot biomechanics are working properly yeah. and you have no, no blister or a callus. So yeah, and it's just been, some people have demonstrated this. They have take, taken collagen, decellarized matrices, uh, staple that onto the Achilla tendon, and you know, they have a compliance matching. It has been mechanically firmly attached. They get very little scar formation or fibrotic capsule. So it, this supports our findings. Tell me about Termis, and tell me about your new post there. Um, I, I take the historical way. I was uh, I started off in European Tissue Engineering Society. It's, a, it's an organization in Europe. And we found that we uh, were competing with the American organization about dates for conferences, and we didn't get very well along. It was politically in bit, you know, infected situation. And I was elected president of ETS, of some reason, I don't know why. 
and uh, I said, well, I don't like to fight with the Americans. I've been in U.S. I, I've been I live I've been living in U.S. and I've been in Asia quite a bit. And I said, why don't we do something together? And I met Alan Russell, and he said the same thing. Why don't we do things together and just make a, a world organization? And uh, you know, I think we're scientists. We're not politicians. Uh, we don't need to fight. We need to collaborate. So I set off of, of trying to do this. And in fact, Alan Russell has done most of the work. I've been, I've been supporting him whenever I could. But now things are rolling. Uh, things are moving. We have a world organization. We have different chapters in different continents that do their own things, uh, assist in, in going the same way. And I think we are becoming a very powerful organization and a way to, for scientists to be able to communicate. Uh, we have organized a schedule of the meetings so they don't overlap. We don't compete on meetings. We collaborate on the meeting schedules. And we're going to be a speaking partner to regulatory agencies in Europe, Asia, and U.S. And probably it's going to be harmonized as well. So I think it's going to be a very good, uh, I think we're looking into a very interesting future in oh, uh, tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you'll, you have an opportunity to affect science policy all over the world. Yes. At least as regards regenerative medicine. Yes. Then again, the field is so broad, and in, uh, just as your lab, it encompasses so many disciplines that um, you could have a, a worldwide regenerative medicine agenda. Not that that's a bad thing. No, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I hope it will work out fine. Yeah. It sounds well. I, I think I believe this is a new paradigm for, for um, both scientific discovery and eventually more and more clinical mm -hmm. treatment. Mm -hmm. So, and it's your I, job is to convince lawmakers yeah. that, that that's yes, the case. Yes, and I, I yeah. think it's based a lot on the initiatives from the members of the organization. It's um, the leaders are there only to provide pathways to go for membership, uh, you know, initiatives. So I'm not myself going to propose many initiatives. I'm just waiting for them to come. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Leah. And now let's listen to Leah's interview with Dr. Martin. Note that he's not only working on new treatments for bone, but he's also making bioreactors available to physicians in hospitals. So my name is Ivan Martin. And where do you work? I work at the University Hospital in Basel in Switzerland. And what sort of work do you do? So I'm uh, leading a group in uh, tissue engineering. Uh, specific focus is on uh, cartilage and bone. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the privilege of working in a hospital, so we work uh, mainly with human cells from patients. So that's our distinct approach in, in trying to associate them to uh, three-dimensional scaffolds and generate grafts for cartilage and bone repair. Are you using those grafts then on patients yet? or Not yet, okay. but we are uh, getting started in uh, submitting protocols to the Ethical Commission so that we can uh, hopefully start uh, phase one clinical trials soon. And what kind of problem would you seek to solve? What sort of clinical problem? So we, we are starting... Uh, with the, in the bone area with uh, a uh, spinal fusion uh, trial where we are planning to uh, uh, implant uh, uh, granules of ceramic which are loaded with autologous cells to make them osteoinductive. Um, so um, our audience may not know those words. So those are the pa autologous is the 
the patient's own cells. Yes. And, and tell us about the next step. Okay, so, <laughs> so the idea is to take uh, um, a, a, an aspirate, so a puncture from the uh, bone marrow of uh, a patient who needs a graft to um, uh, expand the uh, cells which are capable of forming new bone tissue and then to load these cells into uh, materials uh, which are usually made of ceramic and uh, to generate a material cell construct, uh, composite construct, that can induce bone formation upon implantation back in the patient. And our distinct approach is actually uh, to try to do this process of uh, cell isolation, cell expansion, and uh, loading into uh, these materials within closed bioreactor systems, which are kind of uh, uh, devices that take as an input uh, the um, uh, biopsy from the patient and should give in a streamlined, automated fashion the, as an output the graft back for the patient. And so is that, how do the cells live on a ceramic material? Are there nutrients in there, or is that the bioreactor's job? Or So the, the cells uh, need, of course, nutrients. So uh, if, a, if a scaffold, if a material is, is thick, it, there is actually not enough uh, uh, nutrition, which is coming purely by diffusion from the uh, surrounding uh, medium. So that's why in our uh, bioreactors we apply the principle of perfusion. So we, we uh, push uh, culture medium directly through the pores of this uh, material so that cells which are sitting on it, particularly in the central part, get continuous uh, uh, provision of nutrients. I see. And so you mentioned spinal fusion. Um, who, what sort of patient needs a spinal fusion? Is this as a result of injury or? Uh, well, it, it depends, but mostly so the, the target patient population that we, uh, that we target indeed is um, from uh, uh, injury patients. I mean, if you fall from a horse or from a motorbike, uh, you actually need some um, you may have injuries to the uh, uh, bone, but but actually also th there can be some degenerative diseases of a, a disc, of intervertebral disc, which causes pain, and so in those cases you have to uh, remove the cartilage, which is in this disc, and try to bridge the intervertebral bodies with bone. So it's an artifact that surgeons do it all the time, um, removing the intervertebral disc and bridging the vertebral bodies with bone, and you need uh, lots of bone in these cases. Usually it's taken from the same patient, from the iliac crest, but that's very painful, mm -hmm. and uh, it actually generates a high level of morbidity. So the patients usually do not suffer uh, from the pain in the spine any longer, but they have oh. pain in the iliac crest. Uh, so in order to avoid this, we try to engineer uh, an equivalent of autologous bone. I see. So I, I want to go back to the bioreactor. Um, you're growing cells around a scaffold. And why is the scaffold necessary in this case? Is it what's helping to drive those cells to differentiate into bone, or is it simply for its mechanical, its strength and mechanical properties that you use a ceramic scaffold? So the scaffold needs to be of a certain composition to uh, give the right signal to the cells to start off doing the right thing. And so the, the composition, the architecture of a scaffold is indeed very important. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's also being able to provide a certain size and shape 
which matches with the requirements of a, of a patient. So is that changed from patient, will, or I should say, will it change when you get to the clinical trial stage? From patient to patient, will you engineer that exactly to fit in the intervertebral space of a certain patient, or is it, do you have a one-size-fits-all <laughs> approach to your ceramic scaffold? So in this first trial that we are planning, there will be a one-size-fits-all, uh, and this size actually will be in the form of a, a granulate material, which is the equivalent of the bone chips, which are harvested from the uh, iliac crest. Uh, but uh, down the line, we, we envision actually of generating uh, larger structures of predefined uh, sizes and shapes, which could uh, uh, be used in a variety of applications and, uh, and do actually something which cannot be done with autologous bone, which is, again, usually in the form of, uh, of chips of bone. Is, in the standard therapy, are those chips cemented together or held together somehow? When the in the standard therapy, in? no. They are just compacted in the intervertebral body space. But you'll have a, a sort of preformed shape So in this scaffold. case, the, the preformed shape will be the same of the bone chips, so it's a granulate material oh, okay. in this I'm first sorry, phase. Uh, but again, uh, prospectively, we, we think of generating cylinders or discs or um, uh, hollow uh, structures that can match more precisely uh, the requirement. Do you see this being used for even larger defects down the road, say of, of long bones or something like that? That's precisely the, the final aim of uh, uh, bridging uh, uh, segmental bone defects that uh, actually cannot be healed at the moment uh, with uh, autologous bone. Uh, so you do require there a, a material of a precise uh, size and shape. How will, though, when you go to larger bone defects, how will you get a blood supply to your, your engineered bone constructs? That's an excellent question. Um, indeed, it will be uh, important to uh, uh, vascularize the graft as early as possible so that the cells, so to, to promote uh, ingrowth of blood vessels in the uh, construct, so that the cells, even in the central part, which have been maintained alive by perfusion during culture, will continue to remain alive. Uh, the, the, there are several uh, possible strategies. Uh, none of these has yet, to my knowledge, been successfully proven. Um, but our concept is uh, to include in the graft not only the cells which are competent in forming bone, but also endothelial cells which are competent to form blood vessels. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, your, your bioreactor can sort of make almost anything. It can make the things happen that you need to happen. The, the complication may be in getting that to continue to happen once you've put this scaffold into a human body. So is that the problem? So you want to make right. sure that whatever blood vessels you can form in a bioreactor are hooked up to the right parts once you've put it into somebody's body. Indeed. So okay. if we have endothelial cells in our construct, which are maintained alive together with bone cells in the bioreactor, so we want these endothelial cells to organize uh, structures which can be connected to the uh, blood vessels of the of the host, so of a patient, and immediately uh, or uh, early vascularize uh, the, the construct. And this has been proven uh, not for bone but for skeletal muscle to be true. So uh, the presence of endothelial cells uh, is actually uh, effective in promoting functional early vascularization 
of a graft. So we, um, I was at first imagining that a very competent vascular surgeon would have to link up little blood supplies, but it sounds like just the presence of those progenitor cells, those endothelial cells, maybe progenitor cells isn't the right term, but in the environment where there is a blood supply, say the ends of a bone, they'll begin to form then into blood vessels. That's the concept. Because they're getting signals yes. from the blood vessels around them. Right. Okay. Uh, whether this will turn out to be true also in the context of, of uh, bone tissue, we, we don't know, but that's the overall uh, hypothesis. And actually, uh, one way of, uh, one important uh, issue to be addressed is where to get these endothelial cells together with the bone uh, forming cells. And we, we recently um, uh, demonstrated that if they biopsy uh, of cells is not taken from the bone marrow, but from a lipoaspirate, so from a fat tissue. Which everybody has uh, more of than they care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, yes. Uh, so uh, the, the fat tissue not only contains progenitors competent to form bone, but also progenitors competent to uh, become endothelial cells. Oh, and so, getting a fat biopsy would be far less painful than having being drilled for bone marrow, wouldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's on the surface. Far less painful, and uh, a, a larger amount of, of tissue could be available. That's right. Um, so we actually have, have taken a, a lipoaspirate from, from patients and uh, simply uh, digested it a bit so that we have a suspension of cells and uh, uh, provide uh, included these cells into our perfusion bioreactor system. And in a, in a closed environment, after uh, two to three weeks, we had uh, the formation of a, of a tissue which contained both bone cells and endothelial cells. And uh, when this was implanted into uh, uh, mice, in this case, we demonstrated that some of the blood vessels which were formed in the resulting tissue were coming from the original endothelial cells that were taken from the fat tissue. So we uh, have... Uh, promising uh, evidence is that uh, these endothelial cells might help the vascularization of the graft also in the clinical trial. Wow. So you, how long, I'm sorry, how long did you say you thought you were from clinical trials? You're starting to get approvals now. So. Right. Yes. How so long do you think uh, that? I, I would estimate that it will take a year before everything is in place. Of course, there are several issues to be addressed, including the safety uh, of the components uh, that are used, the supplements uh, in the, to the culture medium. Um, so this is, um, in general, not well established. Uh, so it takes time for uh, ethical commissions to review the protocols. And I know, I know from having interviewed a few scientists that it's hard to get them to commit to timetables just because of those complex regulatory issues and whatnot. So after you've, um, what's the next step for you? I mean, you're talking about moving this to other systems and using different cell sources. Are you looking for yet other cells that may behave in similar fashions or, or new scaffold materials? Well, of course, uh, we have several uh, projects running uh, where uh, different uh, variables, different parameters of different nature are investigated, the source of a scaffold, uh, the source of the cells, indeed, the culture medium supplements, uh, the type of uh, physical stimuli which is uh, uh, 
provided in the bioreactor system. Uh, but I, I think these are uh, more or less uh, details in this big picture of the, uh, which I think is probably the take-home message of this uh, short um, conversation uh, of a device that is a bioreactor that, again, can uh, manufacture a graft for the patient. We, we, we think that this is an important uh, issue also from a, a commercial economical standpoint because we know all the difficulties that companies are experiencing in trying to uh, expand the cells um, that have to be uh, – expansion has to be so far centralized in dedicated facilities, so the uh, biopsy of a patient has to be shipped to this uh, central facility uh, Operators have to uh, work with these cells and then after some time send back the, the graft back to the hospital. So if our concept works, so these devices could be located within hospitals and the surgeons or the medical assistants can uh, operate them. Uh, they, of course, should be idiot-proof <laughs> so that no technical complications come up. Uh, and this could be the basis of a new business model where tissue engineering can be more uh, uh, broadly uh, applied in, in the clinical practice. So the bioreactor is of your own design then? Yes, it is. Okay, it's a brand new invention from your laboratory. Uh, well, I mean, the concept is not ours, but uh, we have a, a system that we have developed in-house and that we're trying also to uh, develop at a level of, of being commercially available to other centers. Are you working with industry to... Uh... So we are working with okay. industry on this, yes. Great. Okay. Is there anything else you want to tell us about before we wrap up today? Well, I can say that uh, we are here in a, uh, in a meeting in, uh, in Pittsburgh, which is uh, highly interesting, Good. very well organized, Good. and uh, I think is really promoting a cohesion of a broad scientific community. So that's very important. And as we wrap up, I want to ask you if you heard anything particularly exciting today in, in the sessions you've gone to and, and what was so exciting about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I did hear some interesting messages of, of caution about uh, new uh, upcoming technologies which are uh, in the uh, red press, uh, but which indeed... Uh, have to be validated before being uh, considered safe and true. So basic That's science and careful investigation and all the things we actually have preached pretty religiously here at this <laughs> podcast, are, those are still big messages, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. I enjoyed that discussion as well. For more information about Drs. Hilborn and Martin, please see the links on our website, regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Leah, can you share a little bit about the next podcast, please? In podcast number 14, we'll talk with Dr. Mala Padidam with the biotech company Riogene and with attorney David Smith of the firm Pepper Hamilton. Dr. Padidam develops commercial products from regenerative medicine discoveries, while Mr. Smith advises scientists like Dr. Pedidum who want to make clinical and commercial products of regenerative medicine discoveries. Look for podcast number 14 in early August. If you have ideas for future podcasts or would just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. 
We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions, and I'd like to say thanks for all those who have shared their thoughts and recommendations with us. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnosis or medical advice. But we do hope that you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. The RSS feed is at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And please join us again in a few weeks.